Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. I have the pleasure of serving as one of the pastors here. Uh, A few weeks ago, I was working for Best Buy. I got fired, so I'm dressed up for a job interview after church today. I, I don't know what struck me lately, but I thought I'd, you know, kind of throw you a curve and wear a tie every once in a while when I'm preaching. So for, for the old school people, happy birthday. This morning, I want to bring for you a message um, from the fourth chapter of the book of James. And it's on a very delicate and difficult subject. It is a subject that isn't really easy to hear about, but that is critically important that we really get straight in our hearts. And I'm really thankful that James wrote about this because it is something that the church today has to reckon with. The text comes from James chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, and the, uh, the title is Spiritual Adultery. That's a messed up picture. I don't like that picture. Well, let's read the passage together, and here's what the Word of God says. I'm going to read from the NIV. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? And therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. But he gives us more grace, and that is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. It's the word of God. You know, the Bible contains a number of metaphors to help us understand the nature of our relationship with God. And that's important because think about it. What does it mean for a finite human being to have a relationship with an infinite God? You may think you know what that means, but without help, we may be lost at sea trying to figure out how small us relates to huge God. And one of the metaphors, I think one of the most important metaphors the Bible offers us is that of marriage. And it says that you can understand your relationship with God in terms of a spiritual marriage where consistently God is presented as the husband or groom and we are presented as his bride. Now, man, are you with me? I've just always found that to be a bit of a a difficult image for me to get into because I don't want to be anybody's bride. Man, some of you with me, are you really, are you into like, I'm a bride. I'm all dressed in white. I I have a problem with that. Here's one way I've, process that and I I really I think I can sink my teeth into it is that rather than identifying so much with the bride I think about the fact that I'm a husband and I think about the way I feel about my wife my desire to protect her and to provide for her and to cherish her and to adore her and honor her and I think of all those things that I as a human husband are motivated to do for my wife and I think that that's the way God feels for me and that's an amazing thought that every time, if my wife were even to just hint at being in danger, my first thought would be to rush over and protect her. 
And I think that's helpful to me that I'm not so much, I, I am the bride, okay? <laughs> Just don't even like saying it. But it helps me so much to identify with God as the bridegroom and understand that's the way his heart is for me. If marriage to God is a metaphor for the relationship that we have with him spiritually, then it stands to reason that unfaithfulness to God is the same as spiritual adultery. And throughout scripture, starting from the Old Testament, God often used the language of adultery to describe the emotional state he was in when he looked at the betrayal of his people. When he chose a people to belong to him and he poured himself out for them and he loved them and he gave everything to them and they wandered and they betrayed that trust, God didn't just stand by and say, wow, what an epic fail. He didn't just look at it as some kind of religious infraction. He looked at it as a betrayal of a relationship. And the best language he could come up with to help us understand the sting that he feels in that is to say, any of you have ever loved someone and been betrayed, you now know what I feel all the time as your God. That adultery, marital unfaithfulness, is one of the most helpful ways to understand what God feels when our spirits are unfaithful to the one who saved us. There's a particularly um, powerful example of this kind of language uh, spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to what God says. I thought to myself, I would love to treat you as my own children. I wanted nothing more than to give you this beautiful land, the finest possession in the world. I looked forward to your calling me father, and I wanted you never to turn from me. But you have been unfaithful to me, you people of Israel. You have been like a faithless wife who leaves her husband. Now, maybe you know exactly what that feels like. Maybe if you're in love, you can imagine the sting of betrayal and what that would feel like. And I think it's important to use, to harness that power of imagination or understanding to get at what God feels. Because when we stray from him, it is not a casual thing, at least not to God. And so we'll look at this idea of spiritual unfaithfulness as spiritual adultery, and we'll consider a few things. And I'm going to give you a warning up front. The entire message pretty much is going to be the first point, and then there's going to be a couple other points that are going to hit you like a bolt of lightning really fast. The first thing I want to talk about with respect to spiritual adultery is that it does great damage. You know, I think there is a very strong tendency in the hearts of Christian people, and you probably feel this too yourself, to reduce the Christian faith into a set of, of beliefs, a set of moral rules and choices, a set of religious traditions. There's this constant pull in us to make Christianity something that it's not, something manageable. And if it's just a belief system, if it's just a set of moral choices, if it's just religious tradition, then it's safe because we can pop in and out of that per our convenience, and it's really not that big of a deal when we're not doing well. I'm not a great Christian today, but tomorrow I'll be a better one. And that's the way we reason it, isn't it? As if being a Christian is something like, I don't know, playing golf. I just played golf yesterday, so I'm very aware of when somebody's not skilled at golf. And maybe we think of our faith as a golf game. 
you know, I'm not playing that great today, but if I keep working at it, I'll get better. And that is one way we can think of Christianity, but it's not the most important way we can think of it. And the, the imagery, the metaphor of marriage and adultery reminds us that no matter how much we want to reduce Christianity to these other things, to God it is first and will always be a relationship. God does not look at our spiritual wandering and say, when are you going to get better at this? What he says is, why do you break my heart? Now, I wonder if maybe the reason that we're always trying to reduce Christianity to these other things, these neutral feeling things, has to do with the way that we were introduced to the faith in the first place. Many of us, our first exposure to Christianity was when our parents brought us to church. Maybe dragged is more the right word because very few kids, you know, are thinking, oh, Sunday, I'd like to wake up early and go somewhere and listen to teaching. It's kind of like a ripoff to some kids. They're like, man, school is for like Monday through Friday. Sunday, we should be off. And so maybe that was your feeling is you were dragged to church as a kid and you didn't really have much say in it. And that was your first exposure. And in that church, perhaps if your experience is like that of many people, The way the faith was presented to you was as a set of beliefs, as a set of rules and moral choices, as a set of religious traditions, and that's what you saw. And so over time, as you grew older, something felt missing from Christianity as you knew it. Can you relate to that? Where you're there, you're going through the motions, you're an adult, you can sleep in if you want to, but you find, I'm still coming to church. But even as you do it, somewhere in your gut, you feel like this ain't right. Something is missing from this. I see that there's potential here to be moved, but I never feel that movement in my heart. I listen to a a world-class preacher every Sunday. It's a wonder the church isn't 80,000 people strong. Such good preaching. Now, maybe you think that way, but listen, even though you might laugh, you might stay awake, something in your heart feels off, doesn't it? I'm not telling you it should be that way, but I'm wondering if some of us don't feel that. And over time, the beliefs start to feel pretty boring. And the traditions feel really empty. Have you ever popped that piece of bread into your mouth and drank that thimble of grape juice and thought, wow, that's it? That's communion? A really bad snack? That's it? Have you ever felt that? And you're seeing everybody else, your eyes are closed, they're being moved, and you don't feel it. Maybe the rules and the moral choices start to feel restrictive, like a very, very tight turtleneck strangling the life and joy out of you. And over time, as you get older, it's harder and harder to feign interest. You start to wonder, what really is the point of all of this? Maybe it's the way we were introduced to the faith as a set of beliefs and as a tradition or as a set of moral choices, a lifestyle, a culture. And maybe that's why it's so hard for us to understand that when God looks at us, he doesn't really see all of that. He sees a marriage, a bride, a relationship, and that is always the terms by which God will think about and talk about the relationship that he has with us. How much easier would it be to get this If our introduction to the faith is at the hands of people who don't just tell us how to behave, tell us what to believe, but they model for us a deep, deep, passionate love for their Savior. 
people who have built their lives around the Savior as an act of devotion and gratitude and worship. That they're not just telling us how to behave and what to believe, but they model for us a a really heartfelt, deep, personal love for Jesus Christ. The truth is, for a lot of us, that isn't what we saw growing up. That wasn't our introduction to the faith. Parents, I just want to say a word. I know that not everyone here is a parent, but if you are, if you plan to be, listen to me now. It is not enough to bring your children to church. You need to bring them to Jesus Christ. If they don't see in us a love for Jesus, this will all start to feel very strange, very alien. What will your children remember growing up about this Savior of ours that was about popsicle stick art, coloring pages, making a Father's Day card and going, here, we made this. (laughs) That's it? Or will they remember that growing up, Jesus felt like a real person because my mom and dad were nutso about this guy. It felt like Jesus lived in our house because they knew him and they told me who he was and they introduced me to him. Now, I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I say that to wake you up before it's too late. I don't want you to discover, hey, I drag these kids to church every Sunday. Look at them now. They're a mess. But maybe they're a mess for the same reason we're a mess. Because the way they were introduced to the faith was by the shallow path of religion rather than by the deep nurturing path of relationship. And so James says, when you wander spiritually, it's like adultery. And here's what he says. He defines spiritual adultery as friendship with the world. Friendship with the world. Now, don't take this the wrong way. That doesn't mean we have to, you know, retreat away to a private compound and not be friends with people in the world. That's exactly that. You're supposed to be friends with people in the world. Here's what he's saying. Friendship with the world. That word friendship, it's philia. Like when you have a mental disorder where you like something that's not normal, like, like I like to rub poop on my leg or something. That's a weird kind of disease, right? And you say, that you're not supposed to like that, but it's this disproportionate kind of attraction to something. There's all these philias out there. That's how strong a word it is. That it's not just some casual, oh, you're my, you're my buddy, you're my friend, but it is this deep, personal, gravitational pull and attraction to something. And he says, that's what it's about. Spiritual adultery is not when you're friendly in the world, when you're friends with people in the world, but when you begin to develop this kind of disproportionate, gravitational, obsessive connection to the world. That word friend there is the same word that Jesus used in John 15, 13, when he said, greater love is no one than this, that they what? They lay down their lives for their friends. That's the depth of friendship that James is talking about. The kind of friendship you'd give up your life for. That kind of devotion and attraction to something. And he says, look, it's not that we can't delight in the things that we find in this world. The world is full of really great things. I'm not one of those pastors who says that the world is all filth and sewage and yucky. I enjoyed the world immensely yesterday. I went and played golf with seven other men from this church. I didn't play it well, but I played it enthusiastically. And even if I didn't play golf, just walking through that place would have been like a day in the park. So beautiful. I hit a couple shots I will never forget. And it's enough. And I delighted in that experience. 
we're not painting a picture of where we look at the world and say, you're not allowed to ever enjoy it. But there is a secret boundary we cross at some point, and only you know you've done it. Where somewhere in your heart, you've stopped delighting in things in this world, and you've begun to fall in love to the exclusion and the eclipsing of the other legitimate claim to your heart. I think that can even happen with something like golf. Some women are golf widows. Their husband don't just like golf, they are married to golf. They love golf. They are having an affair with golf. If it's shopping with me or golf, I never win, the woman says. You know in your heart that at some point a good thing you enjoy, that you like, that you delight in, you've crossed a line and you've begun to replace the most legitimate love in your life with a secondary love. That's really what an affair is. You begin with somebody you belong to. You've given your heart away to them. You are each other's. And then at some point, you start to give that same thing away to another. And after a while, you realize you can't love them both. And you will love one and despise the other. That's the nature of the adulterous heart. I believe that adultery takes at least two main forms, okay? Uh, You can... You can argue there are more forms. Here are two very common forms of adultery. One is just outright betrayal. If we think of of, um, adultery as spiritual unfaithfulness, one form is just outright betrayal where you openly despise the one who is the one you belong to. Where you just can't stand them and you ridicule them, you disdain them publicly, and then you devote yourself to somebody else. You just take that heart and rip it away from them and give it enthusiastically to somebody else. That kind of betrayal is out there. It happens every day, and it's very, very painful if you're on the receiving end of it. It's the worst-case scenario for anybody who is in love. It's brazen, and because the cheater's heart is cowardly and greedy, it almost always begins with the attempt to have both loves at the same time. I want to have you, and I want to have that person. I don't want to lose either because it's really all about me and I get something out of both of you. Why can't I just share? But sooner or later, the heart discovers that it can only have really one belonging, one master, one true, deep first love. And so you will grow honest and you'll discover that you can only love one and will despise the other. That's the nature of the heart. It is not infinite, this human heart. It can only truly love one object at that deep, deep foundational level. Probably that's not the level of spiritual adultery that's commonplace right now here in this room. Maybe it is, but you're probably not going to be here consistently on Sundays if that's where your heart is with God. Okay? But there's another face of adultery that I think is very common. And that's the the face of neglect. We love others legitimately, and that's not, not a problem, but then we don't love our own with the same kind of love. It's a kind of robbery that doesn't say, I'm going to take from you and give to them, but I'm going to give to them and never give to you. And people think, well, that's not unfaithfulness. I'm still married, but only technically so. You're only married on paper in your heart. There is nothing there for your mate but a giant sucking vacuum of void and blackness. Because if we have marriage vows, the vows are not simply to never have an affair, but to actively love the one we belong to. 
That is what a marriage vow promises. Not simply that I will not wander from you, but that I will love you very intentionally. And when I don't do that, it is a form of betrayal that is so common in marriage as well as it is in spiritual life. Imagine, for example, and since... Uh, since James put it this way, he calls them adulteresses. He's picturing us as a bride who has been unfaithful to, the, the, to God, the husband. Imagine a wife who is so effusively friendly to others. She loves planning parties and having guests. She writes really heartfelt notes. She has hours-long, lively conversations. Every time she sees somebody, she's just hugging them really tight and just loving on them. And then she comes home and does none of that for her own husband. She is emotionally, physically, temporally unavailable to her own mate. Would you say that that person is honoring their marriage vow? They may be married on a piece of paper in the eyes of the court, but in the eyes of God and certainly in the eyes of the jilted lover, they would not say that this is a marriage to speak of. It is a domestic arrangement and nothing more. And I think that's the form of unfaithfulness and adultery, spiritually speaking, that is so common in the church. And I don't say that to point fingers and say, shame on you. I'm saying, could it be that that accurately describes the way you attempt to follow Jesus today? Look, I'm here on Sundays as much as I can be. I don't kick my children in the head. I pay my taxes. I give a little offering. I'm not a bad person. Yes, that's all correct. And you're probably very right. But could it be that you stopped there and said, look, technically, I'm not cheating on God. But could it also be that at the same time, we could not argue that you actively love God? And I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I'm saying that simply to say, if that's where you've set your bar, you may be asleep spiritually and not even know it. I think God, on a daily basis, attempts to invade our lives. I believe that he tries to invade our lives with sweet, life-giving words of encouragement, of peace. He's trying to invite us into times of real rest and fellowship with him. And I'm not talking about just a long nap. I mean that deep soul rest where the anxiety and the tension and the pressure you live with every day dissipates at the feet of the person who most loves you and is all-powerful and says, you come to me, I'm going to carry for you what you cannot handle anymore by yourself. And some of us resist that invitation every day. He's offering what our souls long for, but we rebuff him. We remain cold, apathetic, numb to God and all his attempts to bless us and invite us into a relationship. But then all of a sudden, World Cup or Black Friday or some new restaurant grand opening. And we come alive. We're like, dude, did you see Cahill's kick? That boom, right off. The- did you see that kick, by the way? <laughs> Greatest soccer moment of my life. Seeing that kick right out of the air. Boom. And we see something like that. And the person who's just like, whatever, whatever, suddenly comes to life. And their eyes are all crazy. Like, Ugh! and you're like, what happened to you? Something's got you excited. And imagine the heart of God, if he never once sees that spark in your eye about him. But every day you come alive for something else. 
Now, I'm saying that for you to understand that for God, that's the way he sees it. He doesn't say, why can't you be more, more religious? Why can't you be more diligent? Why can't? He just says, you know what it feels like to be me? It's like watching someone whose love I crave, but I will not command it. I will not make it happen. I will not control you. You must give me that love voluntarily. It's the heart of the parent who has a teenager who can talk for hours on the phone to a friend, but every time you want to have a conversation, good, whatever, fine, yeah. And you're like, I can't make my kid like me or want to engage with me. I want so badly to have a relationship, but I can't do anything about it. I can't put a leash around their neck and sit them down and go, you will talk to me and enjoy it and like it and be lively. You can't do that, can you? It's so frustrating wanting to have a relationship with someone and watching them stay cold and numb towards you, but come alive for everybody else. It is the most heart-wrenching experience to love someone and want that love and never get it. And the worst part is that you're like, here's the thing. It's not that they're not capable of love because you see it for someone else. It'd be better if you could just say you're incapable of love, you're a dead soul, you just can't love anyone. That would be, I could at least bear that. Because then, hey, you don't love anybody. I'm just part of anybody. But when you come alive and love something else, that really hurts. That's like, wow, you can love. You just choose not to love me. I used to make it a policy. I'm not such a jerk anymore, but I used to make it a policy. When I got really bad service at a restaurant, I would leave a tip of one cent. As a way of saying, I remembered the tip, but this is what you're worth. Now, that's really a jerky thing to do. But it's like that. It's like, it's not that you couldn't love. You know you can. You just choose to withhold it from just this person. I think that's what marital adultery really feels like. The sting of it is, wow, look how happy you are when others call. Look how lively you are when we have a party. But the minute the last guest leaves and it's just us, you turn into that zombie again. So unavailable to me so alive to the rest of the world. And I believe that's the heart that God experiences so often with his people. Could it be that that's the emotional impact we have on God? Now, sometimes people who cheat and get caught at it make this claim, it wasn't something I planned, it wasn't something I was looking for, it just sort of happened. Did you ever hear that before? Look, I wasn't looking, but it just sort of happened. It never just happens. James reminds us we choose this friendship with the world. It doesn't subtly, slowly seduce us. We choose it. We make a choice in our heart that I will love this thing more than I will love that thing. It may start with a small flirtation, but eventually it's a concrete choice. We choose to cheat. It doesn't happen out of thin air. But we grow fond of something and we nurture it. We fantasize about it. We let it grow. And eventually we make a choice that destroys and damages that relationship. But here's the thing. Because of the good news of the gospel, thank God I don't have to end the sermon there. Talk about a downer, right? (laughs) Why would you ever come back if that's where the the message ends? But here's the thing. Because of the good news of Jesus Christ and the nature and character our God has, there's hope. Even when you find that this describes the way you are with God. Even when you're horrified to discover you are actually 
a spiritual adulterer. Let me ask you something. If the one you loved cheated on you, and let's not even make this hypothetical. If you're sitting next to the one you love, just look at him for a second. I mean, don't, you're married. Some of you are making babies together. Would you look at each other for a second? Just look at each other. Okay? I want you to picture that person giving themselves to somebody else. It's not a joke. I mean, I want you to picture what that would feel like. What would you feel first in your heart if that moment strikes your life? You know, most people think the first thing you'd feel is anger, rage, bitterness. Oh, those feelings will come. But I believe if we're honest, those feelings come later. What do you think you feel first when you discover that your spouse has been unfaithful? Before the rage, before the cold bitterness, before the vengeful thoughts kick in, the first thing you feel is a gut-wrenching, soul-destroying pain. A sadness, a yearning, a desire to turn back time, to undo their betrayal, to get things back to where they were, to have your lover back. That's the first thing you feel truly in your heart. It expresses often as anger because we're afraid of being vulnerable. But that first feeling you feel is a deep, punch in the stomach, sadness, a grief that is hard to shake off. There's pain, there's sadness, and according to James, yes, there is jealousy involved. Normally, jealousy is regarded in Scripture as a negative thing. And that's because usually it's not jealousy so much as envy that we're guilty of. Envy is to be jealous for something that doesn't belong to you. To want and desire that which is not yours. But God refers to himself several times in scripture as a jealous God. Why would he do that if jealousy is a bad thing? Because it's not wrong to be jealous for that which actually belongs to you. If your wife is flirting with another man and she looks at you and you go, what, are you jealous? Yes, I'm jealous, dummy. What are you, stupid? You're my wife. You're flirting. Of course I'm jealous, and I'm not wrong in being jealous. I'm not petty in being jealous. You're wrong. Because you belong to me, not to another. It is not wrong to be jealous for that which is legitimately yours. That's why God is jealous for us. Because we belong to him. James is writing to Christians who one day stood at the foot of the cross and opened their eyes and realized who this Jesus was to them. They may have forgotten. They may have drifted but he's speaking to people who know the love of God and have walked away. He says, it is right for God to be jealous for you. And here's the amazing thing. There's, so, there's a lot of debate about how verse 5 is to be translated. Um, at some point, every preacher has to land somewhere and make up their mind. Here's what I truly believe this verse means. I'm going to side with the NIV on this one. And say that really what I believe James is saying is at the moment you find that you have betrayed God and are unfaithful in your heart to him. At that moment of betrayal where you're caught cheating on your savior. The overarching sentiment in the heart of God is a jealous yearning for you to return home. That may sound crazy, but that's what God feels. He doesn't say, good riddance, you like the world, you go and be in the world. 
You spiritual whore, get out of here. That's what we might want to say to somebody who betrays us. Get lost. Good riddance. I'm glad to be rid of you. But that is not the heart of God. When we wander from him, when we betray him, when we neglect him, when we love the world more than him. At that moment, it's amazing to think the number one feeling on his heart is a jealous yearning to have you back. And you know what's so amazing about that? Is in the midst of your greatest betrayal, he opens up the door to hope. Most of us, if we cheated on our mate, we may never expect a second chance. Some of our mates have already told us, if you ever cheat on me, I'm going to kill you. There's no joke. Some people say that right out to their mates. We probably think if I ever did that, I'd never be able to look them in the eye and ask for another chance. And yet it's an amazing thing that the heart of God is jealous for you even when you stray. And that's why when we're the ones who fail, and we always will be the ones, God does not fail us. When we are far from him because we've walked away, the door to hope is open because he is jealous for you. So let me give you one last thing. He doesn't just open the door to hope. He helps us walk through. In verse 6, James is quoting Proverbs 3.34. Here's basically what he's saying. God may yearn for the spiritual and unfaithful wanderer to come home, but the wanderer must also decide to come home. It's not enough to say to your unfaithful lover, please come back. They must be willing to do it. And that's why I believe he quotes this important Old Testament verse. Because he's illustrating something about the nature of a cheater. For the one caught in adultery, there are really two ways they can respond. One is the way of pride and the other is the way of humility. You know, there are some who cheat and they say, well, yeah, but it's because of you. If you had done this better, if you had done this differently, I would never have done it. In fact, I'm the real victim here. How awful is that? Have you heard things like that? Because I have, and it's disgusting. It's horrifying to listen to someone who's done wrong and then turns it around and defends themselves. And somewhere in the heart, the cheater says in pride, my happiness matters more than anything else. I'm sorry that this hurts you, but i got to look out for me. We should have never been together in the first place. I finally woke up from my slumber. We don't belong together. That's the road of pride. Some people, when confronted with cheating, see it as their declaration of independence. Finally, I can be out in the open about this. I can stamp my foot down and say, you know what? Good, I'm glad it's out there because I'm done with you. And if that's the response you have when you realize you have wandered from God, what James says is that if your response to being caught is pride, he will oppose you. You will cut off the pathway to reconciliation and restoring of the relationship. You know how hard it is to counsel a couple if the cheater takes the position of pride. There's no humility. There's no remorse. And what James is saying is when you discover that this is what's happened in your relationship to God, stop being so brazen. Stop being so self-defensive and just acknowledge it. 
He encourages us instead to take the path of humility. He encourages us to say, look, I accept full responsibility for what I've done. I disavow this other relationship. I will never see them again. I earnestly repent. I ask you to forgive me. James says, if that's the way you respond when you realize you've been unfaithful, God shows favor towards that person. Because that heart is ready to rebuild, to restore, to reconcile. So the question I have for you is today, this morning, as you think about where your heart is with your Savior, is it possible that you have wandered far from home? That somewhere in this very exclusive relationship God wants to have with you and me, you find that you're not where you really need to be. You find that you can't remember the last great moment you had with Jesus, but you can remember the last great day you had on the links. The last great restaurant you ate at the last unbelievable, unforgettable meal you swallowed. Could it be that your mind is filled with the celebration of many things, but you can't remember the last great day you had with your Savior? The last truly meaningful, heart-stirring moment of quiet just sitting with him. If that's the case, then something is wrong in the way you're trying to relate to Jesus Christ. I don't say that with a voice of condemnation, but to tell you if what you're doing is called Christianity, let Coach Dave tell you, you might be doing it wrong. It's not supposed to feel so dead, so cold, so guilt-driven. You're supposed to look forward to him, to enjoy him. And if that's not where you are, listen, don't be so passive and wait for him to keep chasing you. Humble yourself and say, God, there was a time when I felt very differently about you. You were very, you had, you occupied a very different place in my life. And I would love to go back to that place. I'm ready, at least on my part, God, to acknowledge that if you feel far from me, I'm probably the one who moved. God doesn't ditch us. He doesn't abandon us. He does not play hide and seek or hard to get. God is always with us. And when he feels far, as the bumper sticker says, guess who moved? And maybe it's time this morning just to acknowledge, I can't make my heart love you more. But I can at least admit that I don't want to stay here. And cry out to God for that jealous yearning to come and seek you out and win the day. To bring you home. I'm going to invite you to examine your heart honestly. I think most people at Harvest are not guilty of this betraying kind of spiritual adultery. But I think it's a growing trend in our church that many of us are numb to God and so alive to the world. I know that's the case, at least on Sundays, because... Some of you are catching up on your beauty sleep in this place. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad for falling asleep. I'm saying, you know, because you sometimes fall asleep in movies too, don't you? But I wonder if that's telling you something you need to know about your own heart towards your Savior. 
I wonder if today what God wants to tell you is you have moved very far. And I think your life will be better if you come home. Why don't we bow our heads? Let's just take a, a few minutes to respond. You know, last night, um, I had a real um, moment of reflection in my own heart. Because sometimes you stand up to preach something, and because you're the one writing the sermon, you think, been there, done that. I think this is particularly an occupational hazard for us pastors. We have to be on all the time, even when, honestly, we're not very close to God. And I don't know about you, but I'm really, really grateful that when I'm the one who wanders, God is jealous for me. I'm glad that when I have no right to ask for a homecoming, the door of hope is open because he does not take vengeance against us, but he yearns for our return. And that if all we will do is humble ourselves, he will show favor, and a homecoming is possible. I know some of you have been in a really dry place spiritually for a very long time. I'm going to simply ask you to pray this way. Just say, God, I don't want to stay out here in the desert anymore. I don't think this is what I was called to. I don't want it anymore. Come get me. That was the whole story of Jesus' parable. Good shepherd leaves the 99 and goes hunting for the one dummy who wandered off away from safety, got himself trapped and lost and in trouble. And that's the one he searches for. And he rejoices greatly when he finds them. If that's you, would you just say it with a simple heart? Come get me. I don't want to be here anymore. I'm tired of it. So why don't we just pray in our own voices to the Lord? And then I'll invite the praise team to take us into worship. Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee. So without further ado, here he is. 